This is the smell of a warm three-day-old egg salad sandwich in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag with new Fabuloso lemon scent. Hefty, hefty, hefty! <sighs> smell the difference? When life gives you stinky, get Hefty Ultra Strong with new Fabuloso Lemon Scent. It smells like clean, freshly picked lemons. So no matter what's inside your trash, you can stop the stink and smell the lemon. You know, consistently creating new content isn't easy. All too often, I find myself awake at 3 a.m., 4 a.m., thinking about my next episode. But recently, I found this little shot that gives me such a great energy boost that I've actually cut down on my coffee intake. It's called Magic Mind. With matcha and ashwagandha, one of my favorite Ayurvedic rasayans, it makes me happier in the mornings. It's not heavy on caffeine. So now I'm thinking about my next episode in the afternoons, because guess what? I sleep like a baby through the night. So seeing how well it works for me, I'd encourage you to try it out as well. Go to magicmind.co slash TFP and join others who want increased focus and productivity. You can also use my discount code TFP20 to get 40% off of your first subscription or 20% off of your first one-time purchase. My 40% off code lasts only for 10 days, so check out Magic Mind today. Overachievers place an enormous preview on achievement and therefore on control until one day they will inevitably learn that it doesn't matter how much they've accumulated happiness has not come with it. And as a matter of fact, they're usually correlated in the inverse. The more status, the more power, the more money you have, the less likely you are to truly be enjoying your life. And this has been verified by studies that are very, very long running. For example, there's a wonderful book by Professor Raj Ragunathan called If You're So Smart, Why Aren't You Happy? And if you're ever interested in just looking at the stats, you are much less likely or twice as likely to be depressed or anxious the higher your income and achievement level is. And that is the superstar mm. paradox. It's when you're living a life that looks fantastic on the outside and doesn't feel good on the inside. And that's where coaching can really be of tremendous service. Welcome to the True Fiction Project, a podcast series that explores the origins of fiction. Every week, we begin with an interview, nonfiction, followed by a creative piece, fiction, inspired by something from the interview. The idea is to demonstrate, of course, that fiction is born out of our life experiences. Now, here's your host, storyteller, author, public speaker, health and wellness expert, Renita Hora. Welcome back to The True Fiction Project. I am your host, Renita Hora, and I have with me today, Karen Eldad, a fascinating guest. She is a personal and business coach and has had this vast array of experiences, which I, for one, am very excited to dive right into. Hi, Karen. Hi, Renita. It's such a pleasure to be on the True Fiction Podcast. I, I'm a big fan. I'm so glad to have you on the show. Not that any of the work that you do or the experiences that you have had are fiction, <laughs> the, the opposite of, but they make for such great stories. So I would love to ask you, sort of going back, I think, in time to that moment in time that you were part of the Israeli army. I mean, this is something which is quite normal, perhaps, for folks on that side of the world, but over here, it's like, wow. So 
tell me more. With pleasure. And actually, you know, I've never really thought of my, my life as anything interesting in the fiction narrative, but I do think that my military experience is hilarious and interesting. And here's why. I actually didn't grow up in Israel. I'm a diplomat's daughter. So I grew up all over the world and I was, as you can hear from my accent, socialized by Americans. Then, at 18, instead of going to college, my parents basically say, by the way, we're from Israel, and it's the law, you're going into the army. This is mandatory. It's mandatory service for women and men. Women serve for two years, and men serve for three years. And I'm like, I don't want to go to the army. And my parents were like, yes, you are going to the army. So we went home, and into the army I went. Now, for those who are old enough to remember the 1980s, you may recall there was a movie starring Goldie Hawn called Sergeant or Private Benjamin. Mm -hmm. Do you remember it, Renita? Oh, my gosh. One of my favorite movies. And I love Goldie it, Hawn. I love Goldie Hawn, but that was a real-life scenario in my case. You're taking a girl who was recently named prom queen in an all-American private high school into the Israeli army. The juxtaposition could not have been more hilarious. So I showed up. Are you ready for this? I showed up with a blowout and French manicure, and a little heart-shaped basket of all my products that I absolutely needed, <laughs> like Cher from Clueless, because, you know, I was also young, and the young are quite supercilious. This was such a culture shock for me, and I have to tell you, it didn't cease to be a culture shock for the duration of my time there. I was very, very princessy at the time. At the same time, I had a, a wonderful experience, learned how to play backgammon, had a really rude awakening to what real life is, and I think it taught me humility and service. And to this day, these are profound values of mine. So it that ended is, well. <laughs> yeah, that is amazing that you would sort of show up in this princessy state, as you say. Now, I have to ask you, I've lived in Asia and familiar with certain jurisdictions that do mandate military training, for example, like Singapore or other places. And I have noticed that, you know, some people very willingly go into it, will have their children go into it. This is the law. This is what we do. And then there are others who will do what they can to get out of it. Mm. Did you face some of that? I mean, you said that you didn't want to go, but your parents were like, no, you're going. So yeah. how did that shake out? Well, I didn't want to go because I wasn't socialized in Israel. But in Israel, this isn't really a question. Even to this day, it's very, very unusual for people to not serve in the military. Mm -hmm. Not just because it's a question of, of shame. It's a question of really not being participant in society. It's just like not paying your taxes. And the difference between a country like Israel and Singapore or Israel and Switzerland, where there are mandated terms of national service, is that Israel is actively always on alert. Mm -hmm. Israel is in a very different political situation. And we are all aware of that. And we are all aware of the fact that if we do not serve, we do not have a country. And in that sense, the obligation is very, very different. You know, for that reason, too, I'm really glad that I went because I think it was my biggest taste of Israel, my hmm. most authentic taste of Israel. So I wouldn't have traded that for the world. So that is an interesting thing you say, because here you are, you start off as a princess, then you're private Benjamin. <laughs> and, you know, before we fast forward to where you are today, how would you say those early days shaped the person you have become today? Well, the root awakening is, I think, essentially the spiritual journey. Many years later, I had another root awakening, which was that everything I was chasing, which was superficial, status, significance, 
power, money, the right job, the right mm -hmm. husband, all of that blew up in my face too. So you could actually think of it as a second Private Benjamin episode, which brought me to becoming a coach. Once again, I learned humility and service through the shattering of those illusions. So there are parallel experiences. It's just that some of us have to go back out there and try again and fail again until we learn that those things will never really build character. So how did that journey play out? I am imagining you did not come out of the two-year training and decide to be a life coach. No. And in fact, I didn't know what a life coach was or a business coach was, or I honestly don't think I even knew anything about coaching outside of the athletic world until I was about 35. So this is many, many years later. Today, coaching is quite a popular and ubiquitous industry. It's an enormous industry today. Mm -hmm. But back then, it almost didn't exist. We're talking about the mid-90s. Really, we have popular voices like Louise Hay back then and Wayne Dyer, and that's kind of it. Um, so I was not exposed to this universe at all. I didn't know anything about it, and I started out as a marketing executive in very large companies, first at publishing companies like Cosmopolitan Magazine, and then later at luxury companies like IWC, which is a watch company, a luxury watch company owned mm -hmm. by the Richemont parent mm -hmm. company. So this is my career for a very long time because I once again had some princessy values but a very, very deep aesthetic love for fashion and luxury and a natural acumen or knack for marketing and sales. So these sort of form my universe and my foray into the original goals, which were status goals. And I think almost everybody, whether you acknowledge it or not, has less idealism and a little bit more certainty and status goals, at least initially in their career, which is, of course, why the career pivot is so common an experience and why the midlife crisis is such a common experience. For me, luckily, that crisis came early. I was 35 years old, and I remember waking up smack in the middle of my dream career and my dream marriage, and I really didn't like either of them. Ooh. They felt terrible to me. The marriage, if you looked at it beyond Instagram, was abusive and alienated. The job was nice, but not waking me up eager every day. What was not my heart's desire, my soul's desire. Mm -hmm. And this was when I turned to coaching. I learned about coaching through being coached, through having someone, many someones, help me through a big transition in my life. And when I realized what it did for my life, I wanted to do it for everybody else. So who were those many someones? The first one I ever met was a woman named Jen Sincero. And I read her book, You Are a Badass, which has since then, I think it's been on the New York Times bestseller list for five years now. She also has You're a Badass at Making Money and Badass Every Day. So it's become a franchise. At the time, mm -hmm. she was still doing group coaching. And believe it or not, this is 2015. This was still by phone. So this Zoom situation you and I are enjoying is very, very <laughs> new, which is astounding to me because I don't remember a time when I lived without it. But that was my first coaching foray. Then I worked with another coach named Catherine Alice. I worked with Tony Robbins, not directly. I did have the chance to once have a session privately interacting with him, but it was called Strategic Breakthrough Coaching, and this is when I really start becoming interested in the industry. And since then, I have worked with coaches on and off myself because, let's be honest, coaches believe in coaching. We are like athletes ourselves. We do really like the upping of the ante, and it keeps me sharp. 
So mm. it's been a it's been a tremendous joy. It's also been a tremendous joy to enter this industry, which I think makes for also very good true fiction because it's nice yes. when your dreams come true. So this is interesting, and I must ask, what is the difference between a coach, a therapist, a friend, a teacher? Is there a difference? Is there overlap? Is this just a very odd question? I love this question. You're allowing me to specifically point at the differences. For the record, I believe that a coach is a teacher. We are first and foremost teachers. And the reason for that is this is a didactic method, which brings mm. me to the comparison first with therapy. There are three principal differences between coaching and therapy. The first is coaching doesn't look backwards. I love saying this as a joke. There will be no blaming mommy here. Mm. We are very uninterested. We are interested in your belief system. We are interested in how you came to that belief system, but it does not inform where you are or where you are going. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, coaching is radically different. It is forward thinking, not back thinking. The second is we are labor intensive. Once again, this is a didactic process, so it's a learning process. And I expect you, as would any coach, to do the work. Though my words are very wise, you will not learn by osmosis. You got to get out there and try it, and do it, and work. Mm. And the third is, coaching is finite. Therapy can go on forever. It is a pleasurable process, I think, for most who are engaged in therapy. I'm a big Fraser fan. I'm a big fan of therapy in general. But there's another very, very ancient reference from the 90s this time. But coaching is naturally a finite process. I always say by the end of three months, by the end of four months, you know everything I know, and that is my job. My job is to make sure that you can move rather than you have a form of dependency on the process. That's the difference. As for friendship, look, I'm a really good friend, but I'm not coaching my friends. And even when you are dealing with someone who has the tools to help you, you can't expect that in a friendship. It's a completely different dynamic. The coaching dynamic is structured with some hierarchy, right? You have to accept one person as the teacher or as the authority. This doesn't make for very good friendship. And it's the reason I'm not coaching my husband, Ryan. I think that would get really annoying really quickly, right? Yeah. Instead, when you're dealing with friends, just keep it at friendship and know that this person loves you and has your best interest in mind, but is usually not equipped to help you. And that's a very, very big difference between that. And again, coaching, which is a structured, finite process. So you've touched on some really interesting points because I, for one, never knew, never realized that coaching was a finite thing, unlike therapy, as you point out. Now, I have to go back to something you said a little bit earlier about yourself. You said you had a lot of these princessy values, right? Yeah. What are, if you could explain to audiences, what are princessy values? We can guess, but I'd love to hear your definition. Yeah. And do they serve a purpose? Well, I don't mean to disparage anybody, but I do think that I had, I suffered from a lot of fairy tale thinking and fairy tale understandings. First, definitely the illusion that someone would save me rather than I would save myself. I believe that in marriage, for example, I thought it was very important to be married. I thought I was less significant without marriage. And I thought that when I did get married, then my husband would manage a lot of things, for example, the finances and the provision. These are very antiquated notions that I'm sorry to tell you I was 100% buying, even though outwardly I displayed feminist values. 
Because mm. I grew up, among other things, let's let's bring in a third pop culture reference from the 80s with Dynasty. So you're watching Alexis Carrington, you think women can do everything and should have a male assistant, and that's really cool, but I'm actually going to live a different way. Now, luckily for me, my marriage blew up enormously, and my husband disappointed me enormously financially. So I really lost that illusion. And I had a rude awakening, a real rude awakening of no one is coming to save you. If you want a certain kind of life, if you want to express yourself to the fullness, do not let this conditionality be in your way. Live on your own terms. And then if somebody wonderful joins the path, that's fantastic. But don't rely on it. And this was a beginning of a transfer, a big understanding that transcended the princess. Of course, I'm also alluding to superficiality and materialism. And again, I love beautiful things to this day. I think they're very, very nice, but I'm not attached to them anymore. I understand that they don't bring me any happiness. So the accoutrements, while they're nice, are not value systems. And I also want to say, Renita, again, about how important culture and media influence is here. Princessy values were very ubiquitous at the time. I can't even tell a person today who has never seen Sex in the City how powerful Sex in the City was back then. Mm. And we were inadvertently buying some strange modern fairy tale. And I am very happy that we seem to have transcended these times. Now, as you talk about don't wait for other people to save you, a lot of the work that you're doing is if not saving, then at least working towards the beginnings of helping somebody else save themselves, right? And your client list is pretty outstanding. You've had clients like Nike or from Nike, Estee Lauder, Salesforce, Kristen Dior, Deutsche Bank. Tell me, Karen, who in these companies needs what kind of saving? Well, nobody needs saving, I started out in this business as a suicide counselor, and if I accepted that I saved somebody's life, then guess what I would also have to accept? That I'm responsible for them not saving themselves. And I can't take that responsibility. It's too big. Mm. It's too big, and it's frankly inaccurate. The only person who changed my life was me. It was a great privilege to work with incredible teachers who for 100% had an enormous impact on my life, and I'm so glad I met them. But mm -hmm. I did the work. So let's never be confused about who is the person in transformation. It is as big a privilege to be in the teacher position as it is to be in the student position. And it's exactly the same for the superstars at Nike, at Salesforce, at Luxottica, at Estee Lauder, at the incredible, powerful echelons in which I coach. They don't need saving, but everybody could use some clarity, some ease, and some tools. And to, in order to blast past that upper limit that they seem to have to real joy, to real happiness, to truly savoring the success, to feeling like they're in the driver's seat of their own life. And it's my joy to just expose them to these ideas. What they do with them ultimately is in their hands. I mm. hope that clarifies that. That clarifies a lot. And you go on to talk about something that you call the superstar paradox. Yes. What is that? Well, the superstar paradox is the most common scenario through which I meet people mm -hmm. uh, in coaching. I coach a certain stratosphere of overachiever. That's my particular genre because I like to say I'm a recovering overachiever. And overachievers place an enormous premium on achievement and therefore on control. 
until one day they will inevitably learn that it doesn't matter how much they've accumulated, happiness has not come with it. And as a matter of fact, they are usually correlated in the inverse. The more status, the more power, the more money you have, the less likely you are to truly be enjoying your life. And this has been verified by studies that are very, very long running. For example, there's a wonderful book by Professor Raj Ragunathan called If You're So Smart, Why Aren't You Happy? And if you're ever interested in just looking at the stats, you are much less likely or twice as likely to be depressed or anxious the higher your income and achievement level is. And that is the superstar mm. paradox. It's when you're living a life that looks fantastic on the outside and doesn't feel good on the inside. And that's where coaching can really be of tremendous service. But is that sort of the blanket case with everyone whose life looks so great on the outside? No, I don't think so. I think we are looking at probably a third of the population right now who are susceptible to deaths of despair. And for them, social mobility is not really an option anymore or certainly much, much harder than for everybody else. And when you're in survival mode, you're in a completely different zone. Mm. When you're in survival mode, your issues are first to address the survival issues, the financial issues, the issues of addiction, issues of socialization and conditioning, and then to start talking about happiness. Mm. And that's a little bit, just an extra layer or an extra hurdle. Again, it's not, in my mind, it's not insurmountable. You can do it, but it will take a different level of dedication. And for the record, that's where I started. I didn't actually start in highfalutin. I only came to coaching when I had lost everything. I was really broke. I was sleeping on French sofas. I didn't know how I was going to get out of it, and I was suicidal. And you can start from that low deficit too and still understand happiness and make it to the other side. So wherever you are, it's just a different path, but you will get to the same destination. Mm. Now, here in America and probably elsewhere in the world, we are an achievement-oriented people. The immigrants you come in, talk to about the American dream, you have to achieve these goals, you have to make it for yourself, for your family, etc. Good reasons, we think. How do you stop yourself from being not achievement-oriented, but going from achievement-oriented to overachieving, as you say? I think you have to get really honest with yourself and ask yourself, how's that working out for me? The truth is, the adage of working very, very hard is the most... You're absolutely right. This is the most paramount belief in society today, and I'd like to argue even outside the United States. But how's that working out for people? How is hustle culture working out? Mm. It is exhausting. It has produced burnout rates like we have never seen before. It is producing other very severe ramifications, depression, anxiety, divorce, mental health issues in the young, in teenagers, and disconnection and isolation from society and from each other. So I think one of the great things about COVID is that a lot of people started to really wake up and understand that we don't have infinite time. Why have we accepted this? And when you start asking those questions, you'll start asking other questions. For example... Is it true that overworking, overachieving is actually even going to give me freedom? In most cases, that's not true. There are people working three jobs in this country and they're exhausted and they're nowhere near comfortable financially. And let's also think about this tactically. Jeff Bezos probably makes, I think, I don't know, 100 million times more than I do. Does he work 100 million times harder than I do? No. So they're not even commensurate. 
the idea of reward being commensurate with the amount of work you put into it doesn't make sense. And the idea that working very hard will result in happiness doesn't make sense, especially if you're able to be honest with yourself, I don't know, after the age of 35 and realize pretty quickly that that's not been working out for you. If that is an honest place to which you are able to arrive, you'll be able to change your life because you'll understand that you don't want that anymore and you'll look for a solution or an alternative. Mm. Now, you have done some TED Talks and Tracy DeForge had mentioned that your TED Talk mentor teacher was Olympia Dukakis. Yes. The wonderful Olympia Dukakis who we all love and respect. So tell us about that. I cannot not ask you. <laughs> this was another one of those moments of favorite from the universe that I can't explain. I don't know how that happened to me, but as I was rehearsing for my TED Talk, You Don't Know What You Don't Know, a client of mine told me that she's working with Olympia Dukakis and would I like to meet her. I obviously had to collect myself off the floor. I was so excited about that question. Olympia Dukakis from Steel Magnolias? Olympia Dukakis who won an Oscar for Moonstruck? Yes, of course I would like to meet her. So I ran, didn't walk, I ran to her house, which was on Broadway Street in New York. She passed away, sadly, last year at the age of 92. So I'm just also so beyond grateful that I got to meet her in, the, in what would be the last year of her life. I walked upstairs, I sat down, and one of the first things she said to me was, are you an actress? No. So why are you here? To meet you. Well, do you want to talk about anything? She was so straight shooty and so unusual in that abruptness. So I told her I was doing a TED Talk. She said, what's a TED Talk? I explained what the TED Talk is. And she said, all right, well, let's work on that. It was just an amazing thing. I didn't ask for anything. I didn't come with any intention other than to, I don't know, have coffee with a hero. And she ended up completely in those moments as I recited my TED Talk to her, stopping me every few moments, redoing every line. And I walked away after a couple of times visiting her with a completely different talk. I believe the reason the talk's been so successful, over a quarter of a million people have seen it, which is remarkable for a person who isn't a big media personality. I think it's because of her. I really do. I think mm -hmm. she helped me nail it. <laughs> yeah, I, she really has a wonderful way of helping people nail things. I say this because I had the honor and the privilege of attending a workshop held by her way back when I was in college, way back in the days of the dinosaurs. So when Tracy sent me that message about, you know, your work with Olympia Dukakis, I said, I have to ask. <laughs> That's amazing. That's incredible. So you know, so you know yes. I'm not lying. That I woman know. was terrifying and it was amazing. Terrifying full well and, you know, to have had a piece of her in your lifetime, it's just something else. It's, and so loving. It was just it's really a gift from God. I'm so grateful for that moment. Yeah. So, Karen, we are coming up to time. I would love to ask you what it is that I have not asked you <laughs> that you would like to share. Well, there's a lot. There's a lot. You know, what's been on my mind lately is just how lucky we are to get to do anything like this, like your podcast, anything that will give people some hope, some respite, a little bit of warmth in the middle of their day. I think that that's really what's been on my mind ultimately, so... Thank you for the opportunity to just do that. 
Absolutely. It's a pleasure. And you might know the premise of this podcast is to take this interview, this conversation that we've had, throw it out to a fiction writer and see what they come up with. So I would love to end by asking you if you had the opportunity to give this writer a prompt, what would it be? (laughs) Private Benjamin. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Private Benjamin. Private Benjamin finds her soul. Fantastic. All right. Well, that's a writing prompt if there was one. I can't wait to see what comes out of that. Karen, thank you so much. I really appreciate this, Renita. Thank you so much. That was Karen Eldad. She is a personal and business coach, a TED Talk speaker, and a private Benjamin in her own right. This is The True Fiction Project, and I am your host, Renita Hora. And now to the premise of The True Fiction Project, which of course is to create fiction out of nonfiction. Spec Ops for the Princess. Written and read by Parker James. Hey, Aiden. Sorry for literally disappearing off the face of the earth. Also sorry for using an 80-year-old method of communication. This princess has her comms on lockdown. Hence the redacted info. Can't let anyone know exactly where I'm at right now. All I can say is the beach is nice and the lack of clothes required is even better. I did take your advice, by the way. This private sec-op gig is paying what you said, like six times what the army was. Anyway, that's besides the point. The first couple of gigs were easy shit. Just follow around some wannabe astronaut billionaire douchebag. Still, overall it was an easy job. Basically, just stand here or stand there and look tough. There was this one time I walked in on him with, uh, let's say, escorts. At least now I know what he's compensating for with all his money. I guess I've seen smaller, but 100000 for three months of work? I guess we'll pay for enough tequila to erase it from my memory. I guess I'm just rambling now. Okay, back to that princess. When I first took the job, I thought it'd be cool. See some real action, you know? Holy shit, was I wrong. She might have had the fame and the money of someone with a crown on her head, but this girl is, whew, wait for it, life coach to the wealthy. At this point, you're probably asking yourself, What the hell is life coaching? What is a life coach? Trust me, I'm still kind of asking myself that question. I guess there's some kind of shrink or something, but just helps you sell more software or something. I don't really know. I would love for Gunny to see this girl's process. In a way, it's kind of a thing of beauty to watch. I had to stand outside of meetings and uh, overheard some stupid shit. Example. Business boy Bob sells oil and feels bad because some eco-girls are calling him out on Twitter for trying to drill in a penguin reserve. This princess comes in the room with her $2,000 suit on and a Rolex worth more than your house. They get into chatting and she has to explain why he shouldn't drill for new oil in a nature reserve. At first, it was like she asked him to cut his own leg off. Somehow, this business boy listens and comes out of the room with tears in his eyes like he was reborn into a better man. I have to give it to this girl. The way she blends and folds words. She could probably get the devil to rebrand. Badass, bro. When I first met her, I felt like I was standing in Fallujah again. 
Something about the way she presents herself, I just felt kind of scared. The more status, the more power, the more money you have, the less likely you are to truly be enjoying your life. Anyway, the reason I'm writing to you is because I need someone to know what a crybaby princess she can be. So we walk up to the hotel, and she says the sheets are too white. She says that snow crest eggshell is the only color she will sleep in. Whatever the hell that means. She goes through six different sheet sets before I just stop the maid before she goes out for another set and give her the original. The maid refolds them and shows the princess. She shrieks with joy and asks why they didn't just show her those in the first place. Now, before I continue, I should be clear. The price for a night here costs more than your ring for grace. That's the price for the cheapest room. We're staying in the villa next door. Well, I guess she is. Us Segoth boys get the workers' quarters. It's not all bad. Because they can speak the local language and the princess only speaks English. Feels good to sometimes translate what the workers say to her. Okay, so after the whole sheet meltdown, she wants to go out for lunch. Sounds easy enough, right? Yeah, sure, if you include her buying up the whole restaurant, taking it almost an hour to pick a table, and then complaining about the amount of sand on the ground. This restaurant was literally on the beach. No shit, there's sand. One table was too breezy. The other, not enough breeze. Too much sun, too much shade. Too close to the speakers. There should be music. Oh, actually, no music. Remember when we were kids and your cousin would spend like two hours to pick a character in Mortal Kombat? Okay, just give that kid tens of millions of dollars in access to the most powerful people in the world. Anyway, as I sit down to write this letter, I might be getting fired. Or worse here. Shortly, before I lock myself in the worker's house, I think I might have lost it with her. She was coming off the beach and misjudged the gate handle. I heard a small crack and she started screaming. Screaming louder than when Mikey took a sniper round to the shin. I sprint over from my post, throwing up, you know, sand and shit. This princess has passed out on the stairs, barely able to breathe. I think she got hit by someone or stabbed or something. I pick her up off the deck and ask what's wrong. She's unresponsive. I'm naturally starting to flip out and scream for our team's medic. The medic rushes over and starts checking out the princess. The medic, nor I, see anything wrong with her. The medic pulls out some smelling salts and the princess jolts awake. Tears and sobs rush down her sand-covered face. We ask her what's wrong and she weakly pulls up her finger. It's a splinter. A goddamn splinter. To be fair, it's like an inch long, but I'd had it. I was so done with the princess demands. I saw red. Next thing I know, I'm uh, screaming at her with my shirt off about what it's like to get hit with an IED and having our medic pull chunks of scrapnel out of my back and how our medic pulled it out with nothing but my gloves to bite down on. I was screaming about what Mikey's leg looked like and how we had to walk him back three miles to base. Whew. At first, she didn't speak. Then she had this look I can't quite describe. Anger, maybe? She looks at me and mouths one word. I-D-F. You know when you're too shocked to move or speak or even understand what someone said to you? 
yeah, so I'll probably be seeing you pretty soon. Uh, that is if she doesn't kill me tonight. I don't really know how to end letters, so peace, Mason. Here at the True Fiction Project, we are always looking for great stories that make for compelling fiction. So, if you have a great story or know somebody who does, or if you are a writer who would like to contribute, then please do get in touch with us at renita.com forward slash contact. Thank you for listening to the True Fiction Project with Renita Hora. Be sure to subscribe to the newsletter to receive more inspiring stories showing how fiction is born from our everyday experiences. For more information, visit www.truefictionproject.com. Thank you.